Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Today's show is a co-production with a California newsroom statewide collaboration. With potentially millions of votes left to count in California and beyond, there's a lot we still don't know about the midterm results. That said, there's plenty to talk about now, especially the national implications of the votes here in California. Democrats and Republicans both have reasons to celebrate victories and lick their wounds. Big money interest took a pounding on a lot of state measures. Is Governor Gavin Newsom set to launch a bid for the presidency? We'll discuss all that and more right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Today's show is a co-production with the California Newsroom Statewide Collaboration. And what a collaboration it's been. Let's waste no time digging into the results confirmed and expected with today's star-studded panel of political reporters. We've got in studio Scott Schaefer, Senior Editor of Politics and Government for KQED. Thank you so much for being here. Good to be here. Josh Yeager, reporter with KVPR. Thanks so much for having me. And Nicole Nixon, politics reporter, Cap Radio. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with the congressional races. Scott, it looks like Republicans will control Congress the next term, but is it too soon to say that cake is baked, so to speak? Yeah, I think it's a little soon. I mean, last night, Kevin McCarthy had the uh, champagne on ice and they had to put the whole celebration on ice because it was so close. You know, that said, it does seem more likely than not that Republicans are going to get the the net pickup that they need. Uh, the question is, how big a majority will they have? Um, just looking around California, and we, we can't say this too much Rachel, which is that there are a lot of ballots in California, in many cases, more than half still to be counted. So like when you look around at some of the closest congressional races, uh, I'm thinking, uh, for example, uh, the race um, around the Modesto area with Adam Gray and John Duarte, the Republican, Adam Gray, the Democrat, 200 votes separating them with many ballots still to be counted. Go down to Orange County, Katie Porter, uh, who was is a rising star in the in the Democratic Party. She is leading Scott Baugh, the former Orange County Republican chair, by less about a thousand votes. Mike Levin, the Democrat in San Diego and Orange County, is up by about four thousand votes. So many of these races are still really too close to call. It will probably be a few days, uh, as it will be with some other races like in Los Angeles, San Jose, mayor's races that are also very close. Nicole, is that your read as well? 
Yeah, um, I've been watching a couple of the congressional races uh, up here uh, in the Sacramento area. There's a, a new district that reaches into the the sort of bedroom communities northeast of Sacramento. Um, in that race, Republican Kevin Kiley is running against a Navy veteran uh, and physician, Dr. Kermit Jones. Um, you know, this was one of those 10 races to watch, but it was leaning in Republicans' favor. It's turning out that way. But like Scott said, there are so many ballots left to count in so many of these races. And we're getting used to that um, in California. So I think it's just important to keep that in mind as we talk about results uh, today and through the next couple days that, um, you know, a lot of these ballots will take a few days to get into county elections offices and be processed and counted. Joshua, let's dig into the race you've been covering near Fresno. Republican Congressman David Valadeo has won four out of the last five elections. Democrats really wanted to knock him off his pedestal this year. Why has that proved so hard to do? Yeah, well, on paper, this district uh, should be a shoe in for Democrats who outnumber Republicans by nearly double. But the reality, uh, as you mentioned, has been much more complicated. And, and that's really attributable to the San Joaquin Valley's just fierce uh, independent streak. Um, There's a lot of of uh no party preference voters here in the valley and there's a lot of skepticism towards the state uh leadership here and the democratic establishment because this is a region that economy is totally um married to agriculture and and oil production and those two industries have have taken a, a battering from drought and from certain state policies that are moving to phase out fossil fuels by 2045 and you know it's it's all kind of resulted in a in a, a perfect storm where where this district that um, on paper is very democratic has been a, a big challenge for for um, the democratic candidate Rudy Salas to uh, really cinch. Um, Joshua, tell us a little bit more about Valadeo. How closely aligned has he been with Republican leadership? Yeah, great question. So Valadeo is one of just a handful of Republicans who voted to impeach uh, President Donald Trump. And um, it's not a decision he regrets. And he just barely defeated a uh, sort of more um, MAGA candidate in the primary um, to to win in this contest and uh, or to compete in this contest, rather. And um, people are really saying that Kevin McCarthy kind of uh, <laughs> prevented Donald Trump from interfering in this race, from publicly attacking um, David Valadeo, which which is kind of what has allowed him to to uh, be so competitive here. Because someone like Rudy Salas or, or, or the Democrats would love to paint um, the Republican candidate in this district as as uh, as an extremist, but with Valadeo, they just can't because. Like I said, he's one of the few Republicans who uh, voted to impeach Donald Trump, and he's uh, campaigned really just down the middle, um, as has Rudy Salas. I mean, they've both highlighted that they're willing to sort of buck their respective parties' leadership. Uh, Salas, who's uh, currently an, uh, an assemblyman here in, in California, uh, he was one of uh, maybe the only Democrat who voted to uh, or supported suspending the, the gas tax here. Um, and, and that's something that he's mentioned a lot on the campaign trail. Um, so it's just really interesting where you have 
some where you have the Democratic candidate trying to seem more like a Republican, maybe, and 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 the Republican sort of trying to to seem more like a Democrat. Scott, Republican Kevin McCarthy looks possibly set to be the next Speaker of the House. Like you just said, we're just going to have to wait and see. Is it fair to say that Republicans need to win what our colleague Guy Maserati has called a crazy buffer uh, because a handful of ostensibly GOP representatives are receiving signals from outer space? Well, uh, there's no question that uh, there are different factions in the Republican caucus, the Freedom Caucus. There's a growing QAnon kind of uh, caucus with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, so yeah, he's going to have his hands full. And the smaller his majority is, the more he's going to need votes like those. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's an- another scenario that's possible, which is that perhaps, you know, McCarthy uh, needs to reach out to some Democrats uh, to get some things done. You know, they're going to uh, use the debt ceiling, raising the debt ceiling as a kind of leverage. The question is, how far will they go? There's going to be a lot of pressure on Republicans if they are in charge of the House uh, to really force the administration to make some serious cuts in programs in order for them to vote for the, the debt limit increase. So, you know, it really, uh, yeah, I think there's a big difference between a margin of, say, 5 and 15 for Kevin McCarthy. And there are already reports this morning that the, quote, knives are out for Kevin McCarthy. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a lot of disappointment probably around the country that the margin uh, isn't bigger um, and that their victory isn't more clear. Nicole, any other pivotal congressional races in California you're keeping a close eye on? I'm thinking California, you know, 27, 41, uh, Mike Garcia, Will Rollins. You know, up here, uh, again, sort of... Close to the Sacramento area, um, one to watch was the ninth district where Josh Harder, a Democrat, um, is running. He is a Democrat who came in in 2018 in the blue wave. Um, in the last couple weeks, you know, Democrats were sounding alarm bells in a lot of districts, including his, um, and he got some sort of last minute assist. Um, Again, a lot of ballots still to be counted, but he's ahead right now, 10,000 votes against um, his Republican opponent, Tom Patty, who's a San Joaquin County supervisor. Um, but, you know, with that caveat asterisk that about only 35 percent of the votes have been counted in this race so far. You know, Rachel, it's interesting going into this election Two of the 10 most vulnerable House Republicans were in California. We've talked about Rudy, uh, or rather about uh, uh, David Valadeo uh, in the Central Valley, also Mike Garcia in L.A. County. And both of those uh, Republicans are leading uh, their their Democratic opponents. I mean, Mike Garcia is up by about 17,000 votes against Christy Smith, the Democrat who he's beaten twice before. Uh, so this uh, clearly third time not looking like the charm for her. And Valadeo is up about 3,400 votes roughly over the Democrat Rudy Salazar. So there are a lot of ballots to count still. Uh, so it's really premature. But I think the one bright spot for Democrats uh, in Congress in California is down in Riverside County, where Ken Calvert, a Republican, 30-year incumbent, he's gotten elected from that area 15 times. Uh, endorsed by President Trump, uh, but the redistricting down there ha- put um, more Democrats into that district, including a lot of uh, LGBT folks in the Palm Springs, Rancho Mirage area. And Will Rollins, a gay former federal prosecutor, is leading Ken Calvert uh, by 56 percent to about 44 percent. He's up by about 10,000 votes. Again, 
Still a lot of ballots to count, but um, you know he's in better shape than a lot of other Democrats are around California. Scott, hey, you mentioned redistricting, um, and I was curious because I thought that um, Mike Garcia's district had trended a bit more blue after redistricting, but maybe I'm remembering that wrong. No, so you're remembering it correctly. I mean, a lot of these districts uh, did that. Uh, you know, I think uh, the the one that Valadeo's in as well. Um, so it just it's looking like Garcia. You know, he's Latino, and uh, there's a lot of Latino voters in that district. Um, and he's, you know, he's also a veteran, a na- a former fighter pilot. You know, there's a lot of aerospace and military uh, folks down in that district. It's a more conservative part of L.A. County around Santa Clarita. Uh, so, yeah, he, he it was more favorable. And so, uh, you know, Christy Smith only lost by 333 votes in mm-hmm. 2020. And so it was really hers to lose. But it looks like she's managing to do that, at least at this point. I'm, I'm going to break in here, Scott, because as we're about to roll into the the first break of the hour. I I wanted to ask you, many pundits have speculated Speaker Nancy Pelosi will step down if Democrats do indeed lose control of the House. Who's unofficially campaigning to replace her? Well, uh, certainly Hakeem Jeffries, uh, who is relatively young. I mean, all of the leadership of the Democrats in the House are in their 80s. Uh, And Hakeem Jeffries, uh, although he hasn't been sort of endorsed by Pelosi, seems to have the support he will need to become Speaker, um, make him the first uh, black Speaker if that happens. Um, Adam Schiff made a run for it as well, uh, but it doesn't look like he's going to make it. He may have his eyes on Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat, perhaps. We'll see. We are talking about the midterm election results with Josh Yeager, reporter for KVPR. Thank you so much, Josh, for being here today. We're going to let you go. Um, Scott Schaefer, KQED's politics and government editor and co-host of the podcast Political Breakdown, and Nicole Nixon, politics reporter with CAP Radio. What are your hopes and concerns? coming out of this midterm election. Join the conversation, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. But whatever you do, stay with us. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Let's talk state propositions now. A few of the many ways since, as is so often the case, there were so many of them on the ballot. Nicole, Proposition 1, which blocks in Californians' right to an abortion now that the federal protection is apparently over. Any surprises in the outcome here? I think 
this was favored to win. No huge surprise that it's um, the race was called for Prop 1 passing last night. Um, this adds, like you said, the uh, the right to an abortion, the right to choose contraception to the state constitution. And Democrats added this to the ballot soon after the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade came out over the summer. Um, that require, you know, constitutional amendment does require voter approval. And they are sort of pitched it as a, a, a last-ditch effort to cement as much protection for reproductive rights as they could, um, you know, with the with the prediction that Republicans could retake the House, might retake the Senate, and are really eyeing in a, a federal abortion ban. Um, so, you know, this is in the Constitution now. What happens with Congress and a, and a federal abortion ban, um, you know, we'll see in the, in the coming years. But um, if a federal abortion ban goes into place, I think that it'll definitely be – this will definitely uh, – make its way through the courts. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Uh, What questions or thoughts do you have about election results? Join the conversation. What questions do you have for Scott Schaefer, KQED's politics and government editor, Nicole Nixon, politics reporter for CAP Radio, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also email us, you know, uh, questions to forum at kqed.org. We're paying attention to Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where you can find us with the handle at KQED Forum. Scott, Propositions 26 and 27 would have legalized uh, or would still uh, certain types of gambling. More money spent on their campaigns than on any other ballot measure in U.S. history. Why did they lose? Well, uh, a number of reasons. One, when people are confused, they tend to vote no. Uh, And I think with all that advertising going back and forth, the tribes are for this, the tribes are for that, you know, people were a little bit confused. I think that was part of it. I think there may have been some ad advertisement fatigue as well. I mean, people were just inundated uh, with ads for and against Props 26 and 27. You know, and there was an interesting uh, item in the PPIC poll, the most re- the, the one right before the election, which was that most people don't even care about sports gambling. Like 9% of Californians really care one way or the other. And, uh, you know, there are some downsides to legalizing more gambling, making it easier to, you know, place bets on your phone or your tablet. You know, parents might be concerned about their kids doing that. I mean, there are legitimate concerns about addiction to gambling. So I think all of those things uh, combined uh, just really doomed these two ballot measures. And and they really got crushed. I mean, Prop 27, that would have been the online wagering. That one uh, was 83% no. And uh, the sports wagering in casinos on tribal lands, 70% no. So, yeah, just not even not uh, kind of a non-starter. Nicole, you, you've heard the old adage, Scott expressed a version of it, that when California voters are uh, in doubt about a proposition, they vote it out. It rhymes. Uh, Mm -hmm. That said, can we expect to see some of these initiatives again in 2024? Absolutely. Um, Look, both sides of the sports gambling issue, tribes and the the big uh, mobile gambling companies have talked about potentially bringing this back in 2024. So uh, we heard about the fatigue this time, but... um, this is something that we may see again very soon. I would. Uh, I'm very curious about what lessons each side learned from this campaign and and the blowout on um, against sports, uh, legalizing sports wagering on both sides. Um, 
Another one we've seen before is the Proposition 29, which is a, a requirement for kidney dialysis clinics to have certain staffing requirements, having a physician um, on staff while patients are being treated. And this is the third time in, what, four years that um, voters have seen this on their ballot. And it also went down. It's 70 uh, percent of voters as of today have voted no on this one. So um, I guess we'll see if this one also comes back in two more years and uh, you know, keeps that trend going. Yeah, and I think the other route for uh, the sports gambling uh, question will be the legislature. You know, it may yeah. just be uh, that uh, the tribes and Democrats and the governor get together and try to figure something out on that so that they don't go back to the ballot. I mean, there's nothing on, uh, in terms of the results that would encourage either side, uh, either, you know, in either 26 or 27 to go back to the voters. Nicole, we're looking at four more years of Gavin Newsom. You were at his acceptance speech last night. What did he say about his agenda? Um, it was really interesting. He he spoke very briefly, only six or seven minutes um, last night, did not take questions. Um, we didn't hear much about his agenda. Truthfully, he talked a lot about um, national issues, um, He's been drawing this contrast in recent months between California um, and himself as the leader of California and uh, other states like Florida and Texas. Uh, he loves to have these public feuds with with the governors there who were also both reelected last night um, and talking about those states and how they're going after reproductive rights, going after LGBTQ youth um, and talking about how. Uh, the results in California showed that voters here want to go in the opposite direction. So he 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 talked about how he'd like to lead the state um, in in that um, in that direction and be sort of a voice on these culture war issues as he has been against Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and their states. Um, he did not talk about state issues like homelessness, um, the cost of living here, things that that voters here are concerned about and persistently top the the list of concerns from voters in surveys and polling. Uh, but he, he didn't address that last night. Well, the phones are lighting up. So let's take a call now. How about John in Alameda? Hi, John. Hi, this is John. Um, I have a question for Scott. Uh, as you read the tea leaves, what do you think is going to happen in Nevada? In our next door neighbor state, do you think Laxalt is going to win, or if the Democrats will hold that seat? And how the I'm curious to know what what your his reading is of the uh, the national congressional balance once it all all the dust settles. Well, in terms of the big picture, when you say when all the dust settles on Congress, it does look likely that Republicans are going to cobble together enough uh, wins. They need to pick up, I think, a net five. Uh, and so uh, the question is, how big will that majority be? Will it be even a workable majority? We've seen previous Republican speakers, John Boehner, Paul Ryan, really struggling uh, with the Freedom Caucus and now the QAnon Caucus. So uh, it's going to be tough for uh, you know Kevin McCarthy or you know Steve Scalise from Louisiana I think if there is a, if there is a sense that Kevin McCarthy maybe didn't do the job he needed to in terms of winning a big enough majority you know I, I, the knives as we said as I said earlier could be out for Kevin McCarthy in terms of Nevada you know um, I haven't been carefully following I do see that Adam Laxalt is up a little bit I just don't know how many votes are yet to be counted I mean here in California the way 
people tend to vote. I think now Republican candidates have seen probably the high watermark for their uh, percentages uh, of the vote. Now we still have a lot of uh, later ballots, mail-in ballots, mostly some provisional ballots that have come in uh, or will continue coming in for the next few days. Those will tend to favor Democrats. I don't know if that's the case in Nevada. So it's a little hard for me to say, but it could be that, that the outcome of that seat really determines whether um, you know Democrats maintain control, narrow though it is in the Senate, uh, or if it's, uh, you know, it, it, we'll just have to wait and see. And there's probably going to be a runoff in Georgia as well. So we may not really know for sure until, uh, you know, several months from now. John, great question. Thank you so much. Uh, Nicole, you know, we have seen a lot of political pundits looking uh, at the influence of the Latino vote in Nevada, uh, you know, this, these past few weeks. Uh, any trends you spot uh, in, in, in terms of the Latino vote in California, or, or is it just too simple? It just turns that vote into a monolith when really it doesn't explain a lot. I think that's partially true. Um, you know, it's been talked about nationally that uh, Latinos did not, you know, Democrats kind of failed Latinos um, again. And, and um, you know, they especially Latino men went for Republican candidates. Um, but, you know, in California, again, it's it's early and it's hard to read these tea leaves, uh, even though they've been steeping for what. 12, 14 hours now, but um, we've got so many days of ballot counting still ahead. Uh, yeah, and just to follow up on the Latino voter thing, uh, down in Los Angeles, of course, the mayor's race there is essentially tied between Rick Caruso and Karen Bass. That one's going to take several days. We won't even get an update until Friday from the L.A. Registrar voters. Uh, but that does seem to be a case where Caruso, a former Republican, just you know, recently turned Democrat in the last uh, few years, is doing very well among Latino voters. Uh, you know, he, he likes to kind of blur his his ethnicity a little bit. He was he was introduced at a forum with uh, Karen Bass as being white. He said, no, I'm Italian. Uh, and I think <laughs> a lot of Latino voters may think he's actually Latino, but he, he does appeal to a lot of voters down there. And I think that, uh, you know, the same could be said uh, for Mike Garcia, the Republican in that Los Angeles congressional district. And Rudy Salas, um, you know, he that, that race is still, I think, too close to call down in the Central Valley, the Bakersfield, Tulare, Kings County area. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think mobilizing Latino voters has always been a challenge, especially as you get away from the coasts. And, you know, in places like Bakersfield, Fresno, Tulare, you know, those Latino voters are different than ones in L.A. and San Francisco. They do tend to be a little more moderate, um, have different priorities than, uh, you know, the ones who are in the Bay Area or down south on the coast. Well, Scott, you just brought up Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, as an old Angelino myself, uh, I I can't help but uh, be curious about your reaction to that, that race in general terms, you know, between Rick Caruso and Karen Bass, a six-term congresswoman from South L.A. LA, running with the backing of the Biden administration. Kamala Harris has been pounding the pavement. President Obama. Yes, you know, like, and, and still such a tight race. It's very tight. I mean, you, you know, you have to say Caruso spent about $100 million of his own money. That is a huge amount of uh, advertising to land on, you know, Karen Bass's head. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's in some ways not a surprise that the race is as close as it is. There's a lot of dissatisfaction among voters in L.A. for a number of reasons. Homelessness is a big problem. The cost of living um, and, and uh, you know, 
public safety. All those things are issues, I think, that play to Caruso's strengths and the fact that he's an outsider. There's a little bit of that in San Jose as well, I think, where you see Matt Mahan, although he is on the city council down there. He's, you know, not a not a political insider of, you know, a career, quote unquote career politician. So, you know, I, I do think that, uh, you know, as these later votes come in, Karen Bass may, you know, uh, take the lead and, you know, open up a, a bigger lead and end up being the mayor. Uh, but I think there is just a, a, a real frustration, a grumpiness among voters, and they're, they're looking for some changes. Nicole, would, would you say that's the story throughout California? I mean, some of the issues that Scott was talking about, housing, homelessness, public safety, these are, these are big issues uh, across the state and really the nation. Yes. Um, and I think another possibly frustration among voters is, um, you know, as you look at some of these statewide offices, a lot of these Democrats um, sailed to reelection, which isn't a surprise. Uh, I think that the Republican Party in California, it's it's clearly like retreated, um, lost influence over the past few years. But some of the candidates that the, the party put up against statewide Democrats, um, you know, are unknown. They don't have a lot of name ID. They don't have a lot of experience, really. The one race where Republicans had a good chance to win a statewide office, Lan He Chen in the controller's race, um, he raised a lot of money, um, ran a good campaign, um, is a Stanford law professor, um, and he is trailing more than 10 points uh, in, in in his race against uh, a Democrat, Malia Cohen, for the state controller's race. So um, it just proves that it's very hard, um, probably impossible for Republicans to win a statewide race in California. You know, I'm looking at the Secretary of State's website, uh, Nicole. You may have more recent numbers than I do, but it's actually a little closer than that. Uh, Malia Cohen with about 53.6. Lan He Chen, the Republican, 46.4. There's about a little less than 3,000, uh, a little more than 3,000 um uh, votes separating the two. I'm sorry, 300,000 3, votes. Oh. 300,000 <laughs> votes. What? Yes, 300,000. There's a difference there. So yeah. again, you know, on the theory that, you know, the Republican votes have kind of hit the high watermark and as more votes come in, they're going to tend to trend Democratic. Probably not a good sign for Lan mm-hmm. He Chen. But, you know, he, I think he can... He, certainly, he's run a stronger race than, say, Brian Daly did in the governor's race, uh, Nathan Hockman in the AG's race. So, um, you know, he, 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 he made it interesting. Let's put it that way. And it's not over. <laughs> I've got to say, a lot of the comments we have coming in are, are asking the two of you to talk about national issues and trends. <laughs> I can understand, folks. I can understand. Scott writes, so what has changed? The polls got it wrong. The red tsunami turned out to be a pink trickle. What now? What does this mean in regards to moving progressive issues forward? Or will we sit in a moment of awe before we get moving again? Anything. <laughs> Who wants to jump in on that well, one? Well, you know, polling, you know, we've seen problems with polling going all the way back to the 2016 election where, you know, Donald Trump, no one really, uh, very few polls showed him uh, beating Hillary Clinton. Of course, he lost the popular vote, but he did win those key electoral votes in certain states. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of soul searching. I think uh, there was concern among pollsters that they had underestimated the level of support for Republican candidates. I don't know if they maybe overcompensated with their sampling. But, you know, polling is it is a science, but there's an art to it as well. And it's really about figuring out who's going to vote, who are the likely voters and what what is the electorate going to look like. And it may take a few days to really know the answer to that. But perhaps what I, what I have heard anecdotally, 
actually is that more young people voted. Those are going to tend to be more, uh, you know, more liberal, more democratic votes, caring about things like climate change, maybe gun violence, um, those that those kinds of issues. Uh, so you know, it's. Uh, it's funny because before every election we say, oh, we're not going to make any predictions. We're, we don't care about the polls. But it is hard because, you know, that's really the only data that you have going into an election is like, what do the polls say? Uh, but, you know, ultimately the only poll that matters is the one on election day, as I say. And, you know, I did hear some experts say say that anybody who says that they know or they can predict what's going to happen um, is wrong. And <laughs> I think that that definitely uh, came to, you know, came to fruition this time. Tess writes, I really dislike knowing that the Dems dumped so much money into setting up Trump backers. Where did it work? Where did it backfire? Do you think they'll do it again? Well, it worked uh, in certainly the governorship in Pennsylvania, where Josh Shapiro handily beat an election denier. It worked in New Hampshire, where Maggie Hassan, who the senator there, a Democrat who was thought to be vulnerable, um, you know, she ended up pulling out a victory over also a very strong Trump supporter. Uh, it may or may not work in Arizona, uh, you know, where we have a very conservative, uh, you know, former TV star uh, who uh, is trailing, I think, uh, the Democrat at this point, but may pull it out is still really too close to call. So, you know, kind of, uh, you know, a mixed, uh, mixed record in that regard. And it's very, it is very risky, you know, because you end up supporting somebody who you think is beatable, but they could win. And then you've got to deal with them in Congress. We are talking about the midterm elections and looking at the outcomes of key statewide and congressional races, as well as the national scene. It must be said today with Scott Schaefer, KQED's politics and government editor, also co-host of Political Break down. And Nicole Nixon, politics reporter with CAP Radio. We want to hear from you. What questions or thoughts do you have about the midterm so far? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. or at KQED Forum. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Stay with us. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim, talking today about the midterms with Nicole Nixon, politics reporter at CAP Radio, and Scott Schaefer, KQED's politics and government editor. You know, guys, we haven't talked yet about the state Supreme Court. Uh, you know, some of our more diligent voters may have noticed those. Uh, you know, there were, they were what was it, four names uh, they were asked to pass judgment on. Uh, what does the picture look like going forward for the state Supreme Court, Scott? Yeah, so there were two appointees of Governor Jerry, former Governor Jerry Brown, Gubin Liu, and Joshua Groban, two from Governor Newsom, Patricia Guerrero from uh, the Imperial uh, County, and Martin Jenkins, all of them getting about 70% yes vote for their uh, to be retained to, or to be confirmed in, you know, in, 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 some, in a sense. Um, and so I think what it shows is just that in spite of you know, a lot of concerns that people have about the the direction of California, concerns about things like public safety. We don't have any of that, you know, sort of uh, divisiveness uh, on the high court that we used to see or did see maybe in the 80s. You know, the Rose Bird Court where she and two other Supreme Court justices got recalled by the voters or they were not retained. And then Governor Duke Majin had three appointees and it really changed the complexion of the court. You know, so I think I think that's a, a tribute to the out the, the now retired um Chief Justice Tani Cantil Sekaue uh, and uh, you know her her predecessor Ron George, they have really created a more collegial uh, court that doesn't get a lot of headlines generally, and that's uh, probably a good thing uh, because when you're in the news a lot as a state Supreme Court justice, it often is uh, somewhat controversial. Do you agree with that assessment, Nicole? Yeah, I do. And if there are about thirty percent um, opting to boot the to boot the Supreme Court justices, I think that would track with the probably 30, 35 percent of people who will just vote no on, on the proposition no matter what it is and vote for a Republican candidate possibly. Well, another national question, this time from Curtis, who writes, there were a few ballot measures across the country that were meant to restrict women's rights to abortion. What have the results told us about the state of women's re- reproductive rights? Well, I think, uh, you know, one state, uh, the K- Kentucky, uh, the, the voters there, I believe, uh, did not pass tighter restrictions on abortion. So that kind of echoes what we saw in Kansas a few months ago, right after the Dobbs decision. Um, and I think I, I want to say Maryland, um, but I'm not. Ma- oh, I'm not sure the outcome in Montana. Montana. Vermont and I think there was another one. And Missouri, am I thinking? No, Michigan, Michigan, that's what I meant Michigan. to say. Michigan, yeah, yeah Michigan uh, really kind of going the other direction that it had been. There was more restrictions, and now they have, like, like us with Prop 1, have really expanded the right and access to abortion in Michigan. And the, the yeah. trend, I think, from this, the last, you know, with what happened in uh, Kansas as well, is that when abortion is on the ballot, um, people will turn out and people will support reproductive rights on the ballot. And, and then some of them might be surprising. Let's go back to the phones now, and this question from Susan in Mill Valley. Hi, Susan. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, question for the gentleman host. Uh, are you sourcing that young people tend to vote more progressive? Because the young people in my life are all Republican. Uh, their reaction to school shootings and all of this is, vote Republican, surprisingly, I guess, to many. So 
Is that just your opinion assumption, or is that data sourced from surveys? Well, it's not anecdotal. Uh, you know, it's really based on public opinion surveys that I've seen over the years. Uh, younger voters do tend to be more, much more proactive and supportive of uh, restrictions on guns, as well as supporting, very supporting of uh, measures aimed at uh, mitigating climate change. So, you know, I'm not saying it's a monolith. I mean, every single you know, group in uh, in our country and probably around the world is diverse. I mean, certainly you can't paint, uh, you know, with a single brush, Latino voters, black voters, uh, Asian Americans. So, you know, you're always going to find exceptions to the rule. At, uh, and, 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 you know, I think we also maybe self-segregate a little bit. You know, we tend to uh, be around people who agree with us on things. You know, we've geographically, politically kind of separated from each other. So it's not surprising necessarily that, you know, people in, in one's immediate orbit are, you know, on a, on a position in a position that may be not the same as the larger group, uh, you know, when you look at younger voters, you know, across the country. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly conservative younger voters, Republican y- young folks, for sure. You know, Scott, I'm, I'm thinking so often the, the shorthand that uh, political reporters use uh, is, you know, how did a, a, a district or a region vote, you know, in the last presidential election or the last 10 presidential elections? And, you know, it, it's worth noting even here in the San Francisco Bay Area where consistently, you know, in presidential election after presidential election, you know, the vote uh, sw- uh, swings towards the Democrat. There's a consistent quarter Quarter percentage, uh, well, not quarter percentage. I, you know, twenty five percent roughly, who who vote for the Republican candidate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, you know, there used to be more Republicans in the Bay Area. I'm thinking of Catherine Baker uh, over in the East Bay. Uh, you know, she, I think, is the last Republican. She was defeated uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there used to be, I mean, San Francisco used to have a Republican mayor, uh, George Christopher. Uh, Barry Goldwater was nominated in San Francisco. Um, I think the last county to vote Republican in a presidential election in the Bay Area was Napa, and they went for George H.W. Uh, Bush in 1988. But it's been solid blue, at least at the presidential level, since then. And, Nicole, it it bears mentioning that, you know, California has sent a lot of uh, big Republican names to the White House. I'm thinking Nixon, Reagan, you know, if you go back long enough. Absolutely. Yeah, if you go back long enough. (laughs) Uh, Well, Richard writes uh, a question I think many people are having. Does Gavin Newsom have presidential ambitions? (laughs) (laughs) Sub-zero, according to the governor. Uh, You know, we're we're not inside uh, the governor's head, thankfully. Uh, But, uh, you know, clearly he is thinking beyond California, whether it it is uh, as a representative of his party to espouse the values he thinks California stands for on things like guns and abortion, LGBTQ rights, those sorts of things. Now, is he running for president? You know, I don't know. Not at the moment. Uh, it has it crossed his mind? I'm sure it has. Uh, you know, he's he's now has four years uh, as governor. He did say in the debate that we hosted a few weeks ago that he would he would serve all four years. That's pretty meaningless, actually, uh, because candidates say that kind of thing, incumbents say that kind of thing all the time. Uh, but, you know, he will have options. I mean, we, we'll find out soon whether Joe Biden decides to run uh, for reelection in 2024. If he doesn't, you know, that could set off a chain reaction among Democrats. Uh, there's going to be a Senate seat open in the in, in California in 2024 as well, when presumably Dianne Feinstein retires. So, you know, he'll have options. Um, but uh, at the moment, he's certainly elevated his national profile. 
Nicole? Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of this depends on what Joe Biden decides to do in 2024. There's also Kamala Harris sort of waiting in the wings. Um and that, you know, that might factor into Newsom's decision. Um, I think either way, you know, it seems like Gavin Newsom has had a, a good time or been enjoying himself being in a national spotlight, um, being sort of an aggressive Democratic figure, um, you know, calling out Republicans more aggressively than he feels other Democrats on the national stage have been um, and elevating his profile. You know, whether he does stay in the governor's mansion for the next four years or decide to go somewhere else um, before that time is up, um, I think he I think he definitely is enjoying sort of the spotlight. Nicole, how, how do you see that playing out at the state level, though? Are there things that Newsom might be doing in terms of the agenda he pursues in the next couple of years uh, where he's sort of impacting the lives of Californians as as he turns his gaze towards Washington, D.C.? You know, this stuff is kind of less sexy, but but things that he likes to mention and, and campaign on are um, a lot of social spending, um, you know, programs like free school lunches, um, expanded family leave, um, after school programs. You know, the largest a lot of this is education, largest school budget in the state's history. Um, this is coming from big surpluses um, that the state has been enjoying the last couple years. And, you know, there are other more cultural issues like abortion. The state put some a couple hundred million dollars toward expanding reproductive access. He he spent more time and money campaigning for Proposition 1 than he did on his own campaign this cycle. Um, so I think that, you know, as he looks to his second term as governor, um, he will have to uh, spend some time focusing on and try to, you know, achieve some real results on homelessness. I think that's something voters will expect to see. And if he does decide to run for president, um, you know, those, if if the state, if the if the homelessness situation in California hasn't improved at all, then that'll be a real problem for him. And um one thing he did last week uh, to maybe signal that he he believes it's time to get serious on this is he uh, rejected a bunch of homelessness plans from cities and counties. He withheld a billion dollars worth of grants uh, to be allocate, allocated to local governments. That was interesting. I noticed that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we do have a little bit of Newsom delivering his accept, acceptance speech last night. Why don't we hear some of that? Come in just a moment. Oh, we don't have a queued up. All right, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit then. Um, you know, I, I, I guess it, it, it's worth saying, you know, that, that question of homelessness. I, Scott, as, as we round out the hour, and first I'm going to say you're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. As we round out this, this hour, Scott, how do you see um, uh, Newsom, I don't know, trying to massage his legacy or... or rejigger his profile, you know, for for a national audience? Well, it's hard to, you know, unsign bills that you've signed and uh, unadvocate for things you've advocated. So I think, you know, he's going to, he'll own it all. 
you know, California has uh, a lot of uh, things to brag about in terms of job growth. Uh, the economy generally has been very strong. We're about to pass Germany, I think, as the number four biggest economy if we were to be a country uh, on our own. Uh, but yeah, homelessness is a problem. I mean, San Francisco, uh, where he used to be mayor, and uh, it's been a while, but has a terrible image right now in the national media uh, because of you know crime, which is you know overstated in terms of if you look at the data, but nonetheless, it's out there. So all those things will be part of his you know his record if he does decide to run for president. All those things will be on the table. Um, you know, it, you, you mentioned Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan having been president coming from California. There's never been a, uh, you know, a Democrat from uh, California who has been in the White House. Uh, Kamala Harris is about as close as we've gotten. Uh, and I think, you know, he, his issues, I think, will be, can he relate to voters in places like New Hampshire and Michigan? Uh, you know, there is a sort of a California image that he has that, uh, you know, may... And I suppose they love to hate us, and if they, they do, hate yeah. us, then they're going to hate whoever is... I remember, uh, yeah, a poll recently where you know, people were asked, which state do you like the most and which do you like the least? This is a national poll, and California was the least liked state. Hawaii was the most liked, by the way. Um, <laughs> so there is a lot of hating, you know, a lot of California haters out there. You, you know, you mentioned, you know, a number of issues that have national audiences looking at California races. And I, I didn't want to leave this hour without asking you both to talk about another big race, uh, again in Los Angeles, the, the incumbent L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva, under fire for his handling of misconduct allegations and gang-like groups of deputies. Uh, nonetheless, you know, uh, in in a, a, a genuine fight against retired Long Beach Police Chief Robert Luna, Scott, what does the outcome signal, do you think, for law enforcement accountability in Southern California going forward? Yeah, I mean, Alex Villanueva, four years ago, uh, when he won, he won as a Democrat. And I think Democrats down there were, were thrilled. But he's turned out to be a you know, Fox News Democrat, <laughs> uh, maybe a Dino, a Dino, you know, a Democrat in name only. Um, he is running against Robert Luna, as you said. Now, the numbers that I saw had Robert Luna out in front uh, by about 60-40. Uh, I don't know if there's been an update, you know, since we've been on the air. Uh, but, you know, Villanueva has been a very high profile. Uh, as you said, he's, he's really resisted oversight of his department. There have been a lot of allegations about corruption and gangs with, among deputies. Uh, and so Robert Luna, uh, you know, is, is, is really represents a fresh start for that department. And, you know, the voters in L.A. also passed a measure that will allow the Board of Supervisors to remove the sheriff for cause, uh, something that they were not able to do. And, you know, if Via Nueva had been reelected or is reelected, I think that'll be another option for them. Nicole, speaking of, uh, you know, accountability, Sue writes about climate change. Can you please talk more about what specifically the state government is doing and what more can be done to slow climate change? I, I guess I would sort of tweak Sue's comment to turn it into a question about whether we saw climate change emerging as an issue at all in California's midterm elections. I mean, Gavin Newsom, uh, you know, has been talking about climate change almost every chance he can get. Um, the The placer was actually on the ballot, I think, was Prop 30, the ballot measure to raise taxes on uh, very wealthy earners to make it easier for other people to buy electric vehicles, you know, new uh, EV infrastructure. 
Newsom actually came out against that and it it looks to have failed, um, which I think was a big surprise because polling a couple months ago showed it um, showed it passing. So that just shows what kind of influence the governor has. The California Teachers Association also came out against this this measure, too. And also, it must be said, Scott, you know, uh, many California voters may be casting a more jaundiced eye at some of the corporate backers of certain propositions, and in this case, Lyft. Uh, but but we see that up and down the, the ballot, you know, uh, uh, voters looking to see who's behind something, who's against something, how much money is going in either direction. Yeah, the 49ers dropped a lot of cash on the mayor's race in San Jose and a city council race down in Santa Clara. And so far, it looks like they're not getting much return on that investment, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, but to Nicole's point, I do think that Governor Newsom's credibility uh, with voters, uh, he has a pretty high approval rating, certainly helped sink Prop 30, no question about that. Um, and so, you know, he, he chose to get involved in that. It's complicated. I think, you know, one thing that the governor is thinking about and, and, and you know, California is facing is a you know potentially a precipitous drop in revenue. Um, revenues are already several billion dollars behind projections. So there is going to be some kind of a shortfall coming into the next budget cycle. Now there is, you know, a fair amount of reserves to help buffer those, uh, those shortfalls. But, you know, nonetheless, I think we've been through a very... Um, uh, very surprisingly uh, uh, just well-off time in California because of our tax system, income taxes with, you know, IPOs and stock options and some very high income earners, you know, being taxed at a relatively high level. Prop 30 would have added to that and added another 1.75% on top of about 13% state income tax. Uh, and so for, you know, probably a combination of reasons, voters decided not to go for that. You know, uh, so many people thought Republicans would do way better than they, uh, you know, appear to have done so far in these midterms, sort of hammering home the question of the economy. And I guess as we as we round out this hour, I'm just wondering whether you think uh, maybe not the Republican message per se, but but that question of, you know, economic dissatisfaction was something that resonated in particular with California voters. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, in California, we're different from, obviously, Georgia or Arizona. You know, we, you know, it is very hard for even, you know, as people say, as they have in polls, that they think California is on the wrong track. Um, you know, we still have not seen a Republican elected statewide in California since 2006. Well, thank you so much. My genuine thanks to all of our guests earlier, Joshua Yeager, reporter at KVPR, and Nicole Nixon, politics reporter at CAP Radio, Scott Schaefer, KQED politics and government editor. This show was produced in partnership with the California Newsroom, a collaboration of California public radio stations, NPR, and Cal Matters. Thank you so much for listening to us today. I'm Rachel Miro. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. 
And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. 